Hello, hello, and welcome to What's Wrong with the Podcast. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Jeff Speck. Jeff was the Director of Design at the National Endowment for the Arts from 2003 through 2007. Prior to his federal appointment, Jeff spent 10 years as Director of Town Planning at DPZ Co., the principal firm behind the new urbanism movement. Since 2007, he has led Speck & Associates private design consultancy serving mainly American cities. Jeff is the co-author of Suburban Nation, which the Wall Street Journal calls the Urbanist Bible. His 2012 book, Walkable City, was the best-selling city planning title of the past decade and has been translated into seven languages. He's also the writer of the Smart Growth Manual and Walkable City Rules. Jeff Speck has been named a fellow of both the American Institute of Certified Planners and the Congress for New Urbanism. He is the 2022 recipient of the Seaside Prize, whose former awardees include Jane Jacobs and Christopher Alexander. Jeff has been featured in Bloomberg, New York Magazine, Vox. His TED Talk and YouTube videos have been viewed more than 5 million times. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Jeff Speck. Jeff is a city planner and the author of many books, including Walkable City. Jeff, welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. We have been very much looking forward to this conversation for a while now. Uh, so we're very happy that you're here today. Please tell us a bit more about your background and yourself for our audience as well. So I was trained as an architect and I thought I would become an architect um, through most of my childhood and um, beyond. Uh, I actually, when I was getting out of college, because it was the fun job to get at the time, may not sound fun. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I became an investment banker for a couple of years, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which, wow. which had the benefit of showing me what I didn't want to do, but also paid for my graduate school, uh, which was lovely. Um, but then, you know, I, I studied art history in Italy and uh, then architecture um, in the US. And um, during that time, I became aware of a couple architects husband and wife named Andres Duani and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg, who were revolutionizing the world of urban planning um, as architects. And um, I stumbled on their work, and then I stumbled on a lecture by Andres at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston that was called Towns versus Sprawl. And it's a lecture that he gave in different forms for decades, and which I still give. He's kind of grown bored with it, and he won't give it anymore. <laughs> But it was a life-changing experience hearing wow. the story. It was really the best story I'd ever heard about why we love certain places and hate certain other places and the, the, the kind of hidden rules and, uh, and policies that lead to those places existing, um, essentially contrasting automobile-based suburban development uh, with all the forms of neighborhood-based development, so villages, towns, cities, and all the places that don't require you to have a car to live your daily life. Um, and it was mind-blowing because, uh, you know, I knew I loved certain places and hated other places, but I didn't really understand why. I didn't realize there was this vast armature of, of rules that made it impossible for us to build any more of the great places that we love. Uh, and I made every effort and eventually succeeded when I graduated from architecture school at joining their firm and spent a decade with them 
doing about 40 different projects around the world, mostly in the US. Um, but also the, the, the other great realization I had from that lecture was, oh my God, this would be an incredible book. And I pitched them the idea of ghostwriting the book for them, which eventually became Suburban Nation. And Suburban Nation was the best-selling planning book of the 2000s. It could have come out in 1990. I don't think people would have been ready for it yet in 1990. Um, it, it basically told the Towns versus Sprawl story. It put my name on the map, which was great. A lot of people thought that Andres and Liz and I were the people who came up with these ideas when really they were the, you know, they were the teachers and I was the student, but I was, by writing this book um, with them, I was able to join them in advocacy for these um, principles. In 1993, which is when I joined their firm, we worked together with other architects and designers and created something called the Congress for New Urbanism which um, started out with a couple hundred people at the first event, uh, now has about 2000 uh, members, I believe, maybe more. We convene every year. Um, people who are interested after hearing this, this discussion may wish to come to Charlotte, uh, I believe in May um, and join us this year. Um, but the Congress for New Urbanism, I always joke, I always joke that it's like if the American Planning Association had a design ethic. So it's essentially, planning, people who care about how our cities grow and are developed, it's planners, architects, developers, bankers, uh, government officials, who understand that the physical form of our landscape impacts the quality of our life. Um, we get, we come together every year, and I've been attending these congresses now for 30 years, um, uh, and trying to spread the word, essentially, uh, of what good urban design is and how to do it in our communities. It's funny that when we started, um, we called it, actually Andres and Liz called it neo-traditional town planning, with the idea being that it was a return to the traditional form of the, of the neighborhood, with nothing about architectural style, but streets and blocks and squares and those things that, that, that make a traditionally shaped city that, of course, is so wonderful to get around. Um, then it became known as the new urbanism. Um, none of these terms really caught on with the general public. Right, best practices in urban design. Well, that doesn't really do it unless you're a practitioner. Um, but I started calling it walkability planning or just planning, you know, just walkability. I don't know when or how that started, but it became clear to me that that was the word that communicated to folks most effectively the kind of places we're trying to make. So, uh, when I wrote my next big book, which was Walkable City, that came out in 2012. Um, that was the name of the book, Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. It was a very American-focused book, but it's now been translated about eight times. And um, with some of my other books has been spread around the world. I have another book called Walkable City Rules that's more for technicians and practitioners and activists. If you're doing the work, mm. Walkable City Rules is the book I recommend. If you're trying to convince yourself or other people about why walkability <laughs> is so important, um, Walkable City is the book I would recommend. Um, a little more completing the, the bio that you asked for. So after I wrote Walkable City, that helped me to get uh, uh, an opportunity to be design director at the National Endowment for the Arts in the US. So in 2003, after a decade at DPZ, I joined, uh, moved to DC, became the, the person responsible for grant making in design at the National Arts Agency here. Um, which basically has the budget of, you know, the city of Berlin's art agency. So it's not, it's not all that it could be. Um, but uh, uh, that experience was 
best for me because it allowed me to oversee and participate in this other wonderful program called the Mayor's Institute on City Design. Mm -hmm. The Mayor's Institute has been around for about 35 years. Um, it has connected thousands of mayors with designers. And basically every two months, somewhere in the US, the Mayor's Institute gathers up for three days, eight mayors, eight designers, puts them in a room, tries to solve those mayors' most pressing urban design challenges. Oh, wow. And um, by designers, I, I, I'm speaking loosely, uh, uh, architects, starchitects, two different things, city planners and urban designers, actually two different things, landscape architects, developers who've done great work, other mayors who've done great work, engineers. Um, so it was my job for two of these each year, for four years. Um, I went to, I went to um, all of them, but two a year for, for four years, I got to pick the specialists. So I have this amazing Rolodex now of all the talent, or I, I certainly started with the folks I knew, but um, you know, who do mayors need to hear from the most? You know, who's, and it's funny because the, the sessions included eight case studies, one case study from each city. You know, how do I revitalize my main, main intersection? Or there's this new performing arts center coming. Is it any good? How should we change the plans? You know, this, this highway in Seattle needs to come down. What should we do about that? Uh, but also each each of the experts was given 20 minutes to speak to the mayors. And I always told them, especially to the architect, like, this is not your normal talk. If you're going to show up and just show your work, then you're not welcome. Uh, but I know, I know because I've been in this position, <clears throat> you've got eight mayors of, you know, mid to large size cities in front of you. You know what they need. You know what they need to know that they don't know. And um you know, I always told them, uh, you've got eight mayors in this room, you, you know, you've got 100 things, or at least a dozen things that you wish every mayor knew, that you really need to share. And that's what you should be talking to them about. Um, but that that allowed me to get to know a lot of mayors, which was great, that led to a lot of work that I did subsequently in cities. And I left the NEA after four years, which is kind of a normal term, um, and started my own small firm, uh, first in DC, and then I moved back to where I grew up, Boston, with my family. Um, and I work mostly for cities and for developers, kind of half and half, um, depending on the uh, economy and other <laughs> other factors. Um, you know, I I just came off of a large developer heavy uh, uh, period, and I think we're heading into a city heavy period, given what's happened to interest rates and other things. Um, but I've always, in the same manner, like I've always felt I had some really important design best practices to communicate. And, uh, you know, whenever I finish writing a book, I can't imagine writing another book. Like, well, I'm, well, I'm done. I'm done. Um, but of course, what happens over the years is I learn new things. There's new techniques developed. The best practices change. Unexpected things like COVID and Uber and Lyft uh, arrive and the, the the false, I would say, promise of autonomous vehicles arrive and other things that, that require um, responses. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if in uh, five years I need to write another book. I should say that the reason I feel exhausted in every way right now um, is that I just finished writing, or really we just finished publishing the 10th anniversary edition of Walkable City um, not walkable city rules walkable city so walkable city came out in 2012 it was the best-selling planning book of that decade and um uh they wanted the publisher wanted to do a um 10th anniversary edition uh 
Hmm. And they wanted, they wanted about 50 new pages from me that would bring it up to date. First of all, I got Jeanette Sadiq Khan, the, the legendary traffic commissioner of, I should say, transportation commissioner of, of New York under Bloomberg to write an introduction, which kind of contextualizes the book in history, um, I hope. Uh, but I ended up writing over 100 pages of new text because there was just so much to talk about that's happened in the last decade. So there's a new updated edition, and I, I and I'll, I'll warn your listeners. I don't know why they keep doing it, but Amazon and my publisher. I, I can see why my publisher doesn't stop them, but Amazon is still selling the old book. <laughs> so oh, okay. I, I go okay. I go to the various I go to the various booksellers, and I see that my old book is often outselling the new book, and I'm like, stop buying the old book. So there's a new version. If you're going to buy Walkable City, make sure you get. Um, the 10th anniversary edition. And hopefully by the end of this podcast, your listeners will want to read it. Awesome. Oh my God. Thank you for like that short intro of a bio. Um, I love so much that you come actually from finance background. <laughs> well, I love, you know, you have such like diversity in like things that you did. I, I, I would say I come from an art history background and the finance was a, uh, just a palate cleanser, a little interruption. <laughs> um, but I have to say for, for what I do, for the type of town planning I do, the combination of having a background in architecture, in art history, architectural history specifically, and finance, it feels like the perfect preparation for, for my work. I, I would, or maybe it's what's led me to do my work. Yeah, I think both, right? I think it's like yeah. preparation and probably informed you in a way that you understood also the communication and the storytelling around it better to be, you know, relatable and accessible to a much broader population beyond city planners and architects. Um, so in, in that sense, I find it fascinating. And we were actually, we did, um, we sometimes do these like panel discussions on big topics. So recently we did what's wrong with architecture and the conversation there oh was my like, gosh. forum follows finance. So in that, in that sense, in that yeah. sense, I think it's like yeah. a really good starting point to like go into any city work that is also, you know, having you work with architects, planners, uh, developers. Um, I, I would I would also add that um, you know for because I know you have a younger audience that wants advice. Um, the other thing I didn't mention is is the the power and you suggested it, the power of communication is super important in storytelling. And um, the other thing about my background is I've always been a writer, uh, mm -hmm. and um, I think one skill that most designers often don't work to develop enough is, is writing skill. And I went to a, both a high school and a college where writing was like first and foremost what we learned yeah. and um, including fiction writing, which, which can really help nonfiction writing. And, and I'm, I'm a huge advocate for the liberal arts education and, and thinking about communication. Another thing I'll add, not that you asked, is that um, public speaking, mm. which so many of us do, uh, it's important to understand that it's it's its own skill. Just because you're good at something doesn't mean that you can speak about it publicly. Oh, yeah. And actually, you need <laughs> to study public speaking in and of itself to be a good public speaker. And most people, of course, don't do that. Um, doing doing four TED Talks over the years, um, that was a very good education because they're, they're actually extremely um, controlling. <laughs> and... <laughs> And um, they so tell you about the format. Oh, I see. And they tell you about the power of threes and all these other tricks that you can use to have a better talk and they make you rehearse. And um, I've 
notice I'm saying, um, when I'm giving a lecture, I try not to say, um, uh, <laughs> um, but that, that it also, particularly for designers is a skill that needs specific attention. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely agree. Storytelling is, we, we joke sometimes like presentation and storytelling is 70% of the work. We can have the best concept, best idea, best design. If we can't present it, doesn't make, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, I want to start with a very um, simple and relatable question for all. Um, so when we say, well, I want to unpack walkability too, because walkability is a word, but it means I feel like many more things than its own definition in a book uh, when it's about the context of a city and how why walkable cities are important. But I want to start off with an example to kind of unpack the challenges of our urban environments today. Um, I live in New York City, right? Very walkable city. Like if we're just gonna talk about walkability, right? Um, and I do spend uh, summers, I spent recent summer in Barcelona. Uh, my daughter does summer camp there. So I spend a lot of time in Barcelona as well. Also walkable city. Um, when I compare both, uh, even though I live in New York City, I feel like Barcelona is more livable. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's why I want to unpack the walkability. And I know that like the conversation goes way beyond just walking. Um, and why going back to we prefer certain environments versus others, right? Like that kind of uh, moment that you had in that presentation that was so eye-opening. Um, and even though we have many urban settings today uh, in US and abroad, why some cities are completely not there yet versus others, even if it's, you know, dense, uh, technically, you know, we can get around easily, um, but it's not necessarily, it doesn't feel sustainable for a human being uh, considering all their life stages. Um, yeah, so I'll leave it. I'll leave it with that. My not main my question main question is not like why New York versus Barcelona, but that's as an example, and we can go from there. <laughs> well, New York's interesting because it, uh, at least, you know, Manhattan and the denser parts of Brooklyn, um, they're definitely the, it's definitely the most sustainable city in the U.S. There's a wonderful book called Green Metropolis by David Owen, who's a New Yorker writer who writes beautifully. I recommend it to anyone, and it actually is the backbone of one of my chapters in walkable city which under the why walkability segment um it's called the wrong color green about mm -hmm. how we're looking uh at the wrong solutions to to climate change and and still are focused you know right now now you know 10 years <laughs> later the focus is still on oh we'll just electrify everything and that will solve the problem and these supply side solutions which you know we know from the war on drugs etc that supply side solutions are much weaker than demand side solutions and the demand side solutions are things like, well, how could we create an environment in which we need to use less electricity and it's actually delightful or better? Um, comparing New York to Barcelona, you know, it's interesting, or, or just to other quote unquote walkable cities. And New York City is technically the most walkable city in the US in terms of how many people are, are walking. Um, you know, it's not that pretty. It's not that green. It's not that um, delightful to walk around but it happens to be a city that's extremely efficient to walk around, probably because there are more subway stops in New York than in the rest of America, <laughs> if you add them all up. Yeah. So yeah. it's a function of transit and density. Um, 
But the, the when I talk about walkability, I really talk about how are we going to convince people to walk everywhere or in at least the potentially walkable parts of every city in America. And it's a global, you know, it's a globally expandable discussion. Um, and so I talk about what I would call, I don't write this, but I would call it deep walkability <laughs> and deep, deep walkability. Cause, cause I do walkability studies. I've done about 15 of them for American cities. And I looked it up and are there any others? And yes, well, there've been one or two other groups of people that have done walkability studies. There's a group called Jane's Walk in Toronto and others. But when I've looked at them, they've basically been about access. They've been about access and, um, you know, is it possible? Is it safe to walk from this place to that place? You know, here's where people used a, a wire cutter to get through a fence that was between them and the transit and that sort of thing. And that's all great. But I'm I'm interested in getting people to walk and getting, getting the, the most number of people to walk. And I have what I call my general theory of walkability which says, you know, in America, particularly in which driving is so cheap and so easy, and most people who can, well, almost everyone who can owns a car. Yeah. And the, the car is often there in the driveway between you and everything. How do you get people to make the choice to walk? Also noting that about 30% of us don't walk. We are too old, too infirm, too poor, um, some other reason, too young, right? <laughs> <laughs> stopping us from driving um we need to care a lot about those people but in fact in most societies certainly in american society it is the richer powerful people who make decisions and therefore for better or worse we want them to make the right choice as well so for people who do have a choice how do you get people to make the choice to walk and the answer is the walk has to be as as good as the drive and in order to do that it needs to it needs to accomplish four things simultaneously it needs to be safe needs to be useful. It needs to be, sorry, I got it wrong, wrong order. It needs to be useful. It needs to be safe. It needs to be comfortable and it needs to be interesting. Mm. And I can elaborate for hours. I often do on each of those points, but I'll, I'll run through them very quickly. Yeah. The useful walk is about mixing uses and mixing uses in the most useful way possible, the proper balance of uses. Most places that are, that have the potential for being uh, mixed use are principally commercial. Try to add a 7-Eleven to a cul-de-sac in the U.S. and see what happens, right? So the, the opportunity for creating fully rich mixed use exists in our town centers, our village centers, our downtowns, our cities, our central business districts, which at a certain point in the U.S., at least in the 60s, became known as CBDs and nothing was in them but offices. Yeah. I was recently quoted in the Boston Globe because they wanted to know they had they had correct suspicions already, but they wanted to know why are our neighborhood downtowns bouncing back so quickly from COVID? Yet the heart of downtown is struggling. A lot of a lot of vacancies, you know, the restaurants, et cetera, aren't coming back. And I reminded them uh, what Jane Jacobs described of uh, described as uh, um, time spread. She said the she said back in the in like 1960, she said there there are 400,000 people coming to Wall Street every day. To work and yet you know why doesn't wall street have one great restaurant why doesn't wall street have one great gym which back then it didn't and the answer was that no one no one lived there and you really need that 24-hour business that dinner rush as well as the lunch rush if you're going to have a great restaurant or gym and other things so uh we made this mistake in the us of uh, designating our downtowns as cbds and that happened to a lesser degree in other parts of the world as well 
but the first thing is typically to bring back that jobs housing balance. There's a lot more we could say about being useful, but the, the whole 15 minute, minute city conversation, which has now taken over, which is just another great way to describe what we've all, all been doing for years, is about having most of your daily needs within walking or, or biking distance. We've been talking about the five minute neighborhood forever, which is the planner's measure, the five minute walk, the quarter mile that gets you um, to most of your daily needs. And the fact that you shouldn't have to get wherever you are, you shouldn't have to get into a car to go to school, soccer, uh, uh, to get cat food. You shouldn't have to get in the car. Um, the second category, the safe, safe category, is where I spend most of my time. Why? Because the useful, the comfortable, and the interesting walk are pretty much a function of the buildings that are surrounding the space. And we'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But the, the safe walk is a function of the streets, and the streets are what cities control. Now, unfortunately, Many cities don't control all of their streets or many of their streets. Mm. Uh, I'm working in Scranton, Pennsylvania, downtown, Joe Biden's hometown. Uh, we're doing a street redesign plan uh, where half the streets and all the signals are controlled by the state. And you better believe what's important to them is not reducing the number of cars traveling through the downtown because their principal mandate as a state transportation agency is to move cars, which wow. is unfortunate for the health of the city. but but uh, that's the circumstance. Um, most cities, just a couple streets are owned by the state or county. Uh, some cities, none of them. Some downtowns, none of them. But bottom line, you have a tremendous opportunity working in any community to remake the streets and make them safe. And in fact, we inherited a condition. Uh, certainly, you know, people your age and younger inherited, people my age and older created, though it wasn't me, a condition where the typical street in the typical American city is deadly. And uh, unnecessarily so. Yeah. So I had an editorial in The Hill, which is a big, um, you know, D.C. publication for for everyone, but it's mostly read by politicos just a couple of weeks ago about how Pete Buttigieg's great new plan and they're investing almost two billion dollars in making streets safer is a great thing. But for every street that that plan makes safe, America is currently building a dozen streets that are going to need fixing because of the way traffic engineering is practiced in the US. And we can talk in more detail about how that is, is misguided. But when I am working in a downtown, I look uh, consistently at, in every street, the number of lanes, the width of the lanes, the direction of travel, because multiple lanes in the same direction is very dangerous. The presence of signals versus stop signs, much more dangerous. Mm -hmm. The presence of parallel parking, it protects the curb. Um, presence, of course, of bike lanes, protected bike lanes, bike lanes that aren't in the, in the door zone. Uh, I look at, uh, here, here's a fun anecdote. When you remove the center line from a street, people go seven miles an hour slower. Oh. Right? So there's all these really fascinating things that you learn. If you do what the traffic engineering profession has not done, which is actually study the impacts of their work, then you learn there's a bunch of standard procedures and 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 processes that, that and outcomes that are that are that are um absolutely deadly that we need to change and uh without help from us they won't change because the engineers are are extraordinarily fossilized in their use of <laughs> of of criminally negligent standards um not that i have an opinion on it now uh the the comfortable not meaning to give you the finger the comfortable walk is 
the most counterintuitive, I think, because we all love wide open spaces, climbing mountains, being seeing great views. The history of America has been moving out into wide open spaces. But in fact, the evolutionary biologists tell us that all animals, humans among them, are simultaneously seeking prospect and refuge. Prospect means you can see your predators before you're attacked, and refuge means that your flanks are covered from attack. And if your flanks don't feel covered, you actually don't feel safe. And that's why we're drawn to outdoor places that are spaces, and they're spaces when they have firm edges. And we always say we're trying to design our streets and squares as, as outdoor living rooms. And when a, when a space loses its edge, it loses that sense of safety, or I should say that sense of comfort mm -hmm. that we unconsciously are, are hoping to enjoy. And mm -hmm. so height to width ratios and the, the proper spatial definition of public, of public squares and streets is a, a central part of the work we do. And a surface parking lot just ruins a place for everyone, right? Simple rule that some communities have and other ones don't. Yeah. You may not put a parking lot between a street and a building. Start with that rule. I was working in the tiny town of White Salmon, Washington. And I asked them, do you have this rule? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, that's why your main street sucks starting at this point, because you don't have that rule. And there's so many main streets in the US where you walk and enjoy yourself in this lovely little downtown. I'm picturing Rhinebeck, New York, a lovely Hudson town. And then you just turn around because the parking lot appeared in front of the building and you no longer want to walk there. So that's fascinating. Then uh, finally, interesting, well, parking lots are boring too, but uh, surface parking lots or structured parking lots or blank walls, or more importantly for designers, repetition, repetition of the same thing for hundreds of, of, and hundreds of feet, um, that is enough to cause people to be boardwalking and they'll just turn around. Or they'll choose, I mean, more accurately, they'll choose to drive the next time. This is most uh, horribly practiced by architects who consistently, when given an urban design scale problem, interpret it as an architectural problem. And uh, a lot of firms, particularly those like uh, Zaha Hadid or Stephen Hole or the, the other star architects, when they have a giant site with eight buildings, they will often repeat the same building or a variation on the same building eight times. And they're just being honest, right? Yeah. Why should I do, I've got eight apartments. I saw one just the other day, it came across my screen. It was a, looked like a kind of a, a sliced loaf of bread where each piece was the same building, beautiful graphic form, um, great from the air, but it was essentially eight of the same building. Mm -hmm. Why would anyone, you know, Jane Jacobs says, said, no one will, walk willingly from sameness to sameness or and repetition to repetition, even if the effort expended is minimal. And so this idea that um, one architect should even design five buildings in a row, what we do with our developers is we make them, if they're doing a, a bunch of buildings, we make them hire many architects. And if they don't, we say, okay, well, then the burden of proof is on the architecture firm to create to, to create sub firms within itself that ideally don't talk to each other and to design the facades of the different buildings. Similarly, we have a technique we call demise lines where we take a building that's too long, particularly housing with that long corridor, and we artificially make it look like three buildings, which is a lie, but it's, it's, a, you know, it's a white lie. What's a white lie? A white lie is a lie you tell to make people feel better, right? 
and it's necessary for the society to move forward. Architects are obsessed with honesty. If you have a building that is too long, you can make it look like three buildings. And if you approach that effort with a sincere goal to have that outcome, it is achievable. If you truly understand, this isn't about printing your signature on as many square feet as possible. It's about creating variety that entices walking. And uh, we do it quite successfully in our, in, our, in our projects. So those are the four things, useful, safe, comfortable, and interesting. Obviously we hide parking lots, we hide parking decks when we have to have them. Uh, and we make sure the street is lively and active. Uh, Jan Gale talks about, uh, does he say sticky facades? I forget the term he uses. <laughs> Thick facades, sticky facades, having depth in your facades. We write codes, for example, for my clients. No retail establishment shall have a door that opens directly onto the sidewalk without being recessed mm. at least three feet from the sidewalk. Um, we write codes that say, well, that recessed area needs to be X number of square feet. It can be long and shallow. It can be deep and narrow. But the idea of creating that thickness in building facades People like to hang on the margins. People are not comfortable exposed in the middle of a space. If you create a space, um, as Jan Gale shows, like the Campo in Siena, which has these giant bollards yeah. in it, people people just hang out on the bollards. They don't hang out anywhere else. Or you put a thick facade with a bench built in or a doorway alcove. And Christopher Alexander talks about this and Serge Chermayev and others uh, talking about, about community and privacy that that for society to evolve, we need to talk to people who aren't our friends and family. We need to meet strangers. And we don't like to meet strangers. We're not going to bring them into our homes, into the completely private space. And we don't feel comfortable meeting them in a completely public space. We need these many gradations between full privacy and full publicness mm. that are represented by the stoop, the porch, the alcove, the awning, and uh, the lobby, if you do it right, the courtyard. Yeah. But doing a approaching design, uh, now I'm getting really sophisticated, but for your, for your audience, I think it's appropriate. Approaching design with this goal of creating the most attenuated and multifarious uh, path from public to private is the way to create a healthy society. I mean, I have so many ways I can reflect on what all of you, what you just said in terms of everything around those like four pillars too. Um, I'm going to tie it back to like how I started it. So like you, you can frame like how I'm like reflecting on it. So as you were talking about like usability, comfort, interest, and safety, um, I was reflecting, okay, why was my experience like in New York versus like Barcelona, like thinking of the nuances, right? And first I reflected on usability and I, I immediately, what I thought about was actually Amazon, interesting enough, because in, um, in it, well, usable, not usability, usefulness, right? Like when when I'm out in New York, technically I can get a lot of things done just by like within like yeah. five block radius. I can take care of all my, like I can run errands, I can take care of grocery. And I love that. Um, and what I do realize though, with like Amazons of the world, I am buying less stuff outside, right? Like maybe just grocery shopping, but because I can order online, 
I no longer am interested in running other many other errands um, in my neighborhood. Meanwhile, in Barcelona, Amazon sucks. Doesn't work. Good and to know. In Barcelona, in the randomest looking boutique store in on a block, you can find everything because Amazon sucks. So you're actually going out more and walking around to find what you need at home. So that was like my experiential difference. So um, can I interrupt to say I think you may be confusing a cause and effect in the sense that that Amazon sucks because it's not very well needed and it's not so much needed because you can find what you need in your neighborhood. Right? <laughs> yeah, probably both. Yeah. Um, and in that sense, like that, I was reflecting on like, is my time outside walking around useful? Like, unless I'm like trying to get to a meeting or trying to go to school or whatever, right? Like I'm out on a mission, I'm going out. I'm always mobile. I don't own a car in New York City. Um, so I definitely benefit from the uh, walkability. But I found myself doing more uh, walking for other needs in Barcelona. Um, reflecting on safety, you know, having lived in like New York since like 2009 now, I'm very accustomed to see all sorts of weird things on the street. So my perception of safety might be a little bit different. Like to me, everything is like normal. Maybe that's not normal. Um, but I could, I sometimes see like, interesting reactions from people visiting me in New York for the first time, seeing some very raw things on the street. And to them, it doesn't feel safe. While to me, it's like another day in New York. And in Barcelona, right. you don't see that. Um, somehow that rawness on the streets that happens through, I don't know, drugs, homelessness, whatever that might be, does not is not that visible in, in Barcelona. Hmm. Uh, and then comfort. Um, I was like looking around a lot and I felt like Barcelona was like ran by elder women, like very well dressed. They look like they own the space and they, they're everywhere. And was reflecting on that, I also noticed, oh, I'm also pushing a stroller everywhere in the city. All subway stations have uh, elevators. Um, all sidewalks are very wheel friendly in general. There is yeah. Um, a bench every five seconds on the sidewalk. And so it's designed for accessibility. Well, maybe it's designed for elders, but I don't know if it was just accessibility in mind, but there is certain level of comfort built in. Maybe it's the culture that pushed for that, right? Like Mediterranean culture versus the efficient New York culture, but it gives you space to rest, relax. You don't have to stress about, am I going to be able to get into the elevator here or whatever? Like there's no pre-planning um in access and necessary right yeah and in terms of interest i guess new york is never not interesting um but i was reflecting on what happened to manhattan during the pandemic where it was dead mm -hmm. uh, I, and i realized the interest in manhattan is very also much dependent on the retail and uh i guess like the show business right it was it's more due to commercial reasons we have the parks but the parks and playgrounds and all the variety of like inner courts and this like interesting things happening in barcelona is not just dependent on the retail and showbiz mm. and things like that so even if that shuts off going back to like even like brooklyn versus manhattan what happened during the pandemic because certain areas in brooklyn is much more neighborhoody it didn't feel deserted uh, right. While Manhattan, we're like, why would you be in Manhattan right now? 
Um, so I think like to me, Barcelona was very interesting. Like there's like a mini playground in between streets, like not forgetting it's still there, right? There is yeah. types of like courts opening with different like art installations, something happening in there. Um, so the interestingness was not dependent on just like retail and commercial life. It was also just like built into the design of the city. Um, so in that sense, like I was like doing a scorecard as you were like walking through us. And this is like, maybe like, this is maybe why I felt, um, it's like Barcelona is doing a better job in New York. Although New York, I can't disagree with the efficiency of it. It actually spoils you. Um, yeah. When I, when I go to New York, I stay in the, mid, in the Midtown area, not because it's my favorite area. It really isn't, but my meetings might be, you know, anywhere from the upper West side to the financial district. And I got nothing against taking the subway, but I don't. I just I walk everywhere because the fact is you can from Midtown, you can get basically anywhere in, in at most an hour. Yeah. And it's such a delight walking yes. around New York. It may not be um, it may not be the most comfortable or green environment or welcoming really even. But it's so <laughs> it's so fascinating. And there's so many people. And of course, nothing interests people more than other people. Exactly. And, uh, and, and if you like architecture, there's so much to look at as well. So, so the, the idea of a massive city like New York, where you don't even need cars or transit is pretty fascinating. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Super, super efficient. I yeah. read one of your like interviews where you talk about like, you, you love walking around in Boston because you might also bump into someone that you know that's the that's what I felt also about Boston too where I mean I feel like New York efficiency is next level it's really hard to reach that um but you don't bump into someone you know in New York City that easy but Boston has that element and that's also very um that makes it very lovely I had a funny experience I went to uh Williams College which is a small college in Massachusetts and um where everyone knows everyone and then I moved to New York and while we were in New York, some old friends from Williams who were younger than us came down to visit us for a weekend and they were staying with us. Um, and then we split up for the day because we weren't they weren't there really to hang out with us. Later in that day, we were down in the West Village and oh. we were walking. We were we were walking down the street and they came walking towards us and they walked by us and they were like, hi. And they kept going. And we were like, this is so incredible that of all the places in New York City, this giant city we bumped into each other yeah. they they didn't understand they thought that it was like williamstown where <laughs> you know everybody it's so like hi like they expected to bump into us being in the same town that we were in I guess yeah, I was, while, while, while you were talking you may have noticed i was sketching uh, not a nice sketch but i was reminded about talking about community and privacy and gradations of publicness mm. um i i moved to miami beach when I went to work for DPZ, okay. uh, Andres and Liz, and uh, South Beach, incredible neighborhood, uh, 1993, and I moved into this building, which had a courtyard on the on the on the corner of the street, um, fountain, and it was a typical hallway apartment building, and mm. it was about it was about 25 units on two floors. I didn't know any of my neighbors, zero. And the only guy I met was the guy who cranked electric guitar at three in the morning and pissed me off <laughs> and no one else. Then I moved two blocks a year later into this building. This building has a central courtyard and all the rooms are accessed off a gallery that looked down on the green courtyard with its fountains. 
Um, and that was a family. That was 25 units. We all knew each other. We dated each other. We watched the World Series together. When there was a hurricane, we had a party. It was an incredible community. And uh, that's the power of design. Same size lot, same size building, same number of units, same cost, but simply how the circulation relates to the open space and creates an interstitial exterior semi-public environment. So that, that was a huge lesson for me. Amazing. Yeah, such a great example of how environment shapes our behaviors too. Yeah. And therefore, it's not, there's a lot of, um, you know, we talk about this even in like sustainability topic in other industries, right? Like consumer goods. A lot of blame is put on customers on, oh, you're not recycling, you're not composting, you're not reusing. And then you're kind of thinking, well, is it recycling friendly? Is that made as a convenience? Could this also be a design problem, right? Like all of that. Right. I think reframing and how we, how we look at things is um, a great, great lesson. And I think you like touched upon that like throughout, throughout uh, the uh, conversation. Um, I do want to be mindful of time. So I'm going to slowly wrap up, although I feel like we can listen to you like for hours, Jeff. So thank you for that. Um, well, I talk, I can talk for hours, but I should say um, with that in mind and thinking about your audience, I teach a two day class at Harvard every summer. It's in mid to late June. I can get the exact dates, yes, uh, but it's, it's uh, <clears throat> your audience would be very welcome there. It's not cheap because it's Harvard, but when you're done, you get a diploma. It makes it look like you graduated from Harvard. You can put it on your resume. And, <laughs> uh, and it's, it's two, two full days of these conversations. There's a design exercise. There's, uh, I involve a, a wonderful municipal planner named George, Pro George Proakis, who talks about the public side. I talk more about the private side. And uh, I would direct your listeners there. I would also say for all the resources that I would like to share. I have a website that is jeffspeck.com, J-E-F-F-S-P-E-C-K.com, which has interviews and videos. It has links to my TED Talks uh, and um, a whole bunch of cool projects to share, as well as connection to the Harvard class and other things. So please share that with your audience as well. Amazing. Yes, we'll put it in the episode description as well. Um, please be on the watch uh, of news and upcoming lectures and talks from Jeff as well, as well as the book. Maybe we don't wait five years, maybe sooner, but you can check out the 10th year anniversary of Walkable City. Um, I know you sprinkled it throughout our conversation, but I wanted to ask again for anyone in design, architecture, urban design, whatever we want to call it, right? Any industry who want to make progress push boundaries, challenge the problems, what would be your advice to them? So I was very fortunate <clears throat> in that I had the opportunity to seek out my mentors and get to work for them. And, you know, at age 30, with so many years of education behind me, I went to work for $12 an hour in Miami for Andre Stuani and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg because I had identified them as the people that I most wanted to learn from. And I think that my advice to your uh, audience, if they're young and flexible, well, first of all, is to stay flexible. Like try, if you haven't established your career yet, um, try not to have any commitments that keep you in one place. 
uh, yet. Put that off. Uh, then try to identify the people in the world that you most wish you were, that you most want to work with and learn from. And you're better off fetching coffee for those people than you are doing schematic design for a mediocre firm and getting paid twice as much. So identify your heroes and, and find a way to get to them. And honestly, if you, if you are persistent, it will happen. People in our firm would just show up and they'd show up and show up and give them a desk <laughs> and say, you know, what can you do? Um, now, when I tell you to stop emailing me, please stop. But, <laughs> but the, 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 um, uh, the idea of, of finding the right role models and connecting yourself to them, I think has, has been central to my career and, and most successful professionals, you know, real leaders, can identify the previous real leader that that helped them along. I love that. I love that so much. I feel like I wish I kind of thought about it that way, like framing how I want to go about my life when I was like getting out of college. So thank you for that. Um, Jeff, this was such a treat. Um, I mean, I feel like I just want to like stop everything now and go back to your book, like to go in depth and like while we're like thinking about I've been successful. <laughs> Yes. So thank you so much for your time. And we will certainly be following all the other things that you'll be doing next. Thank you. Thanks so much for your interest. And um, uh, it's great that you that you share your knowledge uh, through this, uh, this podcast. So thanks for that. And that is this week's episode of What's Wrong with the Podcast. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcasting platform. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Links can be found in the episode description, and you can also find them on our website, podcast.whatswrongwith.xyz. If you found value in the show, we would appreciate if you could rate us and leave a review, or you can simply tell your friends about us. For more details on our guests, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to join us next week. Thank you for listening.